on. I'm on three seats. <laughs> Look, there goes the game. Hello, and welcome to this fall's best of episode for Ithaca Now. I'm your host, Jay Bradley, and thank you for joining us. For tonight's show, we bring you highlights of stories produced by WICB News reporters from this past summer and fall. The last few months held no shortage of major events, from protests in the commons to online schooling and the impacts of the pandemic featured in stories produced by our reporters. These and other fantastic stories can be found individually on WICB.org, and I hope you'll be able to check them out. But first, we bring you a story about our friend across the hill, Cornell. Correspondent Lauren Leone took a look at how recently Cornell University began distancing itself from fossil fuels financially in the wake of student protests and how some in the university have reacted. Over the past year, these chants have been heard throughout the streets of Ithaca and across the campus of the largest energy consumer in Tompkins County, Cornell University. Starting last month, the Cornell University Board of Trustees stopped all new investments in fossil fuels following protracted student protests for divestment at the university's Ithaca campus. Student-led environmental justice organizations see the moratorium on non-renewable energy as a win after a decade of struggles against Cornell administration. Cornell's divestment announcement marks its end to future financial support for private companies that extract resources, like coal and oil, for energy production and sale. Fossil fuels have traditionally been perceived as investments that return revenue for investors. Institutions like colleges and universities have historically purchased stocks and bonds from these corporations to grow their endowment funds. Fossil fuel companies are not respectable investments. That's Cornell professor Caroline Levine who helped to draft the divestment resolution. Educational institutions have an equal moral responsibility to divest because our work is in the future. We are educating young people so that they can have rich, full, wonderful lives. And so the idea that we'd be investing in companies that were also destroying that future just seems so deeply wrong to me. Cornell's divestment reflects the global shift toward clean energy economies and away from the quote, morally reprehensible actions of the fossil fuel industry. However, Brown University is the only Ivy League school that has pledged to fully divest from fossil fuels in the coming years. Alyssa Marcy earned her environmental policy MBA from Cornell in May and has worked to introduce campus sustainability measures through climate action. She says it has taken the university too long to reach this decision. I'm not really sure why Cornell is so behind in this regard. It's a little bit disappointing as a school that has an international presence, especially, and has so many international students. So it's just crazy to me that, you know, something that affects so many people, they you know, aren't maybe as invested in their financial behavior as they should be. 
Student organizations like Climate Justice Cornell have applied pressure to university leaders through social, political, and economic activism in Ithaca, like blocking road intersections to disrupt business as usual. CJC joined discussions with campus community members to put forward a resolution calling for divestment, which was passed by all five of the university's governance bodies. Part of what we found noteworthy about the trustees' announcement of divestment was that they didn't call it divestment. That's Ellie Pfeffer, a climate justice Cornell organizer. They called it a moratorium on fossil fuel investments. And we're pretty sure that that is a strong desire to disassociate themselves from us. A previous vote for Cornell's divestment was unsuccessful in 2015 out of concern for the potentially negative financial impacts on the university. Since then, CJC and its coalition of student organizations turned to forms of protest that would attract more attention to their goals. Pfeffer says, So there was that like legislative work happening, but I am beyond certain that without the pressure mounted by students and faculty taking to the streets and relentlessly disrupting business as usual, this like would definitely not have been possible. As of May 2020, Cornell's endowment totaled almost $7 billion, according to the Cornell Chronicle. 4.2% of its long-term investments was previously allocated to fossil fuel companies. That percentage is expected to shrink to zero over the next 5 to 10 years as funds are reinvested in other sectors. Levine says Cornell's divestment is a meaningful institutional reform. It was actually a much bigger win than it seemed like. This is a long result of a lot of pressure from outside and from inside on all investors to think about what the consequences of their investments are. And so this was just one moment in a long story, but it was a pretty substantial moment. Although Cornell has ended all of its direct fossil fuel investments, it's unknown exactly how much endowment money remains in fossil fuels. Cornell's halt on future investments in this industry means that its endowment is being directed to what students like Pfeffer consider more ethical, green technologies fit for Cornell, a leader in sustainability research and education. Cornell touts its environmentalism as a leader in the world of green energy and environmentally minded practices for university, and yet was so reluctant to divest from fossil fuels and really live up to their values. Though the coronavirus pandemic has put many long-term projects on hold, it did not prevent the passage and vote for the divestment resolution. Marcy says student activists should be proud of their achievement amid the COVID-19 campus closure because the divestment announcement represents a change in Cornell's financial behavior. I think right now that it's something and that that's the most important thing is that you that you have some sort of promise from them. And I think what's most important now is to continue to hold them accountable. You know, to every year, don't, do not let them forget that they made this promise. Students' hopes for divestment are that funding will be committed to renewable solutions and clean energy alternatives that will slow the rate of climate change. They wish to see full divestment from index funds and non-renewable energies, more campus energy efficiency measures, and carbon neutrality by 2035. Marcy adds, I think there should be a focus on what you can do with what's right in front of you. Cornell students are so smart, so innovative, and they can do so much. So I think just thinking about, you know, how do you solve environmental and equity problems just right here in Ithaca would be a good step. 
Going forward, student activism and Cornell University divestment may lead to greater reinvestment into making the Ithaca community more sustainable. For WICB News, I'm Lauren Leone. The pandemic has changed a lot of things. You have to think twice about who you see and when, and while vaccine approval has hope right within reach, it's going to be difficult these next few weeks and potentially still months. However, there were still some bright lights in an otherwise dark time. And sometimes those lights were shined onto a big screen for you to enjoy in a way that most people haven't for a long time. Correspondent Phoebe Harms took a look at the popular return of the retro staple of drive-in movies in the pandemic. Amid the coronavirus pandemic, there haven't been many opportunities for people to socialize while still maintaining a safe distance from others. However, one activity in particular has been surging in popularity during the last few months, and it has allowed several communities, including Ithaca, to come together once again. Drive-in movies, which only a few months ago were considered a thing of the past, have become a perfect form of safe socialization during these unprecedented times. And as of this summer, the drive-in Ithaca has brought that opportunity to the Ithaca community. Yeah, you, you feel a part of something, but uh, there's very little uh, actual human contact that you, you have with people. If you're, if you're feeling uh, concerned with exposure to COVID or the risk of being uh, in, large, like in a large group. That's Oni Sedich, an Ithacan who, along with a few others, has held these showings three times a week since they began operations mid-July. The idea came in that people are need to uh, be socially distanced and people are looking to get out of the house, you know, after the first month or two. The screenings are held at the future site of City Harbor at 101 Pier Road, just off of the busyness of South Meadow Street. For each showing, the crew sets up an inflatable screen, individually parks each guest, and even provides a movie snack. The Luna Street food truck is parked on site throughout the screening, and guests are able to order food while still maintaining a distance. The movies have spread across a range of genres, but have mostly been family-friendly, like Grease, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Jurassic Park. That way, the driving can serve as an activity for anybody who's interested. I myself have definitely been looking for an excuse to get out of the house, so I went over to the drive-in on Friday night. After being handed a menu and led into my spot, I stuck my hat out of my window to observe the other moviegoers. There were families seated in truck beds, couples out for a date night, and groups of friends sitting on blankets in the backs of their cars. There was plenty of conversation and laughter until the 1984 Karate Kid started playing. After that, the only sound was an occasional start of an engine or someone leaving their car to walk to the Luna truck. Oni said that since it is getting colder, showings will probably only resume for another month or so, but he emphasized what a great opportunity this has provided community members who haven't been able to leave their homes. There's plenty of, you know, hiking and nature and th things that you can get out and do, but there's, you know, for the longest time, no movie theaters, no bowling alleys, that kind of stuff. Traditional forms of entertainment that people are able to get out and, you know, spend a weekend night with their family going to do something. So um, I think it's great. It's a great option. Um, especially even for, for older people or people that are higher risk. Not only is it great for individual Ithacans or families, but it felt good to once again feel a sense of togetherness in the community. Stepping outside of my car during the movie on Friday, 
I could just barely hear the noise of the film coming out of each individual car I walked past. It was good to hear that even though each person was separated by their cars, they were all doing something together. If you're just tuning in, welcome to Ithaca Now. I'm your host, News Director Jay Bradley. Tonight, we're airing some of our best stories from the last few months. That was Phoebe Harms. The Black Lives Matter movement led to one of the largest waves of protests this country has ever seen over this past summer. With various groups here taking to downtown, former news director Bridget Bright took a look at the recent local history of protests for racial justice and justice in policing in Ithaca to give local context to this summer's message. There is no doubt that the killing of George Floyd sparked a national, even global conversation that many cities and communities around the world are just opening their eyes to. But here in Ithaca, community organizers have been voicing their concerns with the Ithaca Police Department for years. In January of 2020, the city of Ithaca paid $251,000 to settle a lawsuit alleging Ithaca police officers denied a former Ithaca College student his rights when they entered his home, pepper sprayed him, and arrested him in response to in a 2016, noise complaint. Police responded to that noise complaint at Kyle Thompson's apartment on Hudson Street. Body camera footage from the Ithaca Police Department shows Officer Jacob Allard cuffing Goldstein, making him face a wall, and then throwing him to the ground. Allard then sprayed pepper spray into Goldstein's eyes from about a foot away, while Officer Daniel Bechtold brandished a taser at a crowd at the party. In Goldstein's lawsuit, he claims the officers used excessive force, and it stated that Allard and Bechtold falsified their field reports to justify their actions. The city and police department are acquitted of all legal charges and deny the accusations of excessive force in this case. Kyle Thompson's experience does not stand alone. The much more public instance of police brutality in Ithaca is in the case of Rose DeGroat and Kaji Ferguson. On a Saturday night last April, police claimed they witnessed Ferguson run across the commons and strike another male subject in the face, from which officers then responded to and attempted to take Ferguson into custody, according to a statement issued by the Ithaca Police Department. And after that is where things get complicated. Mayor Savante Myrick released the police body camera footage publicly, where Kaji Ferguson is seen getting tased by an officer prior to the arrest. But even with the body camera footage, both law enforcement and the defendant offer highly divergent versions of Ferguson's role in the incident. The Ithaca chapter of Black Lives Matter, along with other local racial justice groups, 
have been organizing in support of Ferguson and Rose to grow another person involved in the arrest. The public outcry and grassroots mobilization led to the acquittal of Ferguson and DeGroat, according to Cornell professor Russell Rickford. I spoke to Rickford back in the fall of 2019 at one of the demonstrations calling to drop charges against Rose DeGroat. What he said then falls directly in line with the conversations community organizers are having today now that the movement has gone global. Black Lives uh, Matter is a movement um, that was really uh, produced by young people, not only produced by young people, produced by um, uh, queer folks, um, produced by black women, um, and produced by queer black women, right? So, I mean, I think what we're seeing is rather than a traditional sort of model of patriarchal leadership, you're seeing people um, that are historically on the margins um, that are taking um, center stage in terms of, of leadership. And that's very exciting because we're centering, centering those issues, and that means a more progressive, a more transformative uh, movement. In Ithaca, conversations of police violence and abuse of power have been happening in grassroots organizations for years. And now it is getting a new layer of attention and urgency. Other audio from this piece comes from a variety of local protests that occurred over the last few years. For WICB News, I'm Bridget Bright. Hundreds of people made their marks on the commons many times in the past few months, from Black Lives Matter to Back the Blue, with tensions further exacerbated by the oncoming election and the pandemic, WICB News thought it would be important to capture the voices of those in attendance at a few of those rallies. Here you'll hear reporters Madeline Lorraine, Christian Maitri, and Skylar Eagle go to where Back the Blue and Black Lives Matter supporters met each other in opposing protests this September. Dozens of people gathered for a Back the Blue rally in front of the Ithaca Police Department last Sunday. They were met with a counter-protest in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. For the past three and a half months, Clinton Street and the Ithaca Police Department have seen protests in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. The organization has called for the defunding of IPD and the reallocation of funds towards other community services. Um, well, I really believe in defunding the police. I believe that we should be putting resources towards other sorts of community support and that police promote violence. I'm Madeline. I'm Christian. And I'm Skylar, and we got the chance to talk to a few people about why they were there. I'm here because my son is a police officer. We are going to continue to stay diligent and vigilant about Black Lives Matter. I spoke with Back the Blue protest organizer Rocco Lucente from Spencer, New York. When I approached Lucente, he had just finished addressing the crowd with a megaphone. He was clad in a Make America Great Again red hat. Oh yeah, I'm just happy to see that people came out. I uh, 
I'm very proud to see that there are so many people who are here to support Ithaca Police Department, the Tompkins County Sheriff's Office, and so many others who protect us every single day and who have too often been demonized in our community by the local politicians, frankly, by local media and by local activists. Lucente wasn't the only person speaking into a megaphone. Zachary Wynn was standing in front of the Ithaca Police Department, surrounded by a crowd of Back the Blue supporters. He claimed he sustained injuries after observing a Black Lives Matter protest and allegedly witnessed two white elderly motorists get assaulted by protesters. It is important to note that the two elderly motorists were never physically assaulted, despite Wynn's claims. So I was in the position of either staying in that vestibule waiting to talk to a phone that was ignoring me to be attacked or come out here and run away and go home or try and do something to help two innocent people. After the incident was filed by the police, a tweet surfaced claiming that the motorists were white supremacists who drove through the crowd of protesters. Wynn gave his opinion on the matter. Some of the activists claim it was a white male white supremacist who barreled into the crowd with hate in his eyes. And then it was only later when the video came out that they completely changed their tune and our fine mayor, who had likely put the policy in place that allowed this mess to occur in the beginning, According to the Cornell Sun, Mayor Savante Myrick released video footage of the altercation. Myrick stated that he believed the motorists, quote, meant no harm to the protesters. I spoke with supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement asking why it was important to them to show up on Sunday. This is not about who's American, who's not American. This is about equality, equity, and people after 400 years being treated like human beings. The movement picked up speed following the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor earlier this year, sparking nationwide protests. But some of the people in the community are focusing on local reform. Sean Herb is an Ithaca College student who says he's looking to get more involved in local activism. So I'm a senior theater production and design student in Ithaca College, and I live here. In, uh, up, I live off campus. So when COVID started, I was here in August anyway. So just wanting to get more active in the community because there's not as many ways to get political on campus. So. BB Brown is the Central New York coordinator for the Alliance of Families for Justice, an organization that defends individuals who feel they've been harmed by the criminal justice system. Brown spoke to Black Lives Matter protesters at the Bernie Milton Pavilion, encouraging the community to be there for people of color. When they come out, they come out for us. They don't come out for you white young people. They come out for us. Brown says she wants to help people understand how black people are treated differently by police. What I'd say to them is to really go deep and ask themselves, are they really proud of how police have been killing black and brown people, women, children, LGBTQ+. Are they really proud of the work that they have been doing? I spoke with supporters of the Back the Blue rally about why they wanted to attend the event. People came from all over the Finger Lakes and Southern Tier region, each with a specific reason which drew them out. One group that came out in support of police was the Southern Tier chapter of the Punisher's Law Enforcement Motorcycle Club. A worldwide organization, the Punisher's acts as a paramilitary group in their chapter regions. My name is Tyke Morris. I am the president of the Finger Lakes chapter of the local Punishers. 
Punishers is an LE organization. We are a law enforcement group. A majority of our members are active law enforcement or retired law enforcement. We are here today to support the Ithaca PD and the things that they do. Morris told me that he understands the call to take action against police officers who are bad or do wrong. I guess one of the biggest things that I'd like everybody to understand is there are good and bad in all walks of life. It doesn't matter the walk of life that you belong to, but you're going to find bad and you're going to find good. We have, we have things set in place to take care of the bad, and that's the way it should be. However, Morris and the Punisher's Club don't believe in the call to defund the police here in Ithaca and across the nation. Morris told me he believes there would be negative consequences for removing police officers or their funding. Defunding the police will not accomplish anything. Defunding the police is only going to lead to more widespread crime. When you defund the police, they're not there to be able to protect you and help you in a way that they should. We, Our organization is supports law enforcement and the things that they do. Other rally participants wanted to speak with me about their attendance, but chose to remain anonymous. Many shared sentiments with those in the Punisher's Motorcycle Club. Yeah, we're just here to support the local police department. I've had, had a lot of friends that work for the department over the years, and uh, you know they deserve our support given what's going on in the country and how disrespected they've been. I think it's great. It's a peaceful protest. We're showing support. Nobody's being disruptive or disrespectful to anybody. And all these police officers, whatever color they are, they are his brothers and sisters. So I, I don't see what the issue is with all this racism business. For WICB News, I'm Madeline Lorene. I'm Skylar Eagle. I'm Christian Matry. Of course, mental health has been a challenge for many over the course of the pandemic. Lockdowns, grief, financial challenges, and more have impacted nearly everyone. But mental health challenges have been here for a long time. Correspondent Nigel Young took a look into some of these challenges that face the Black community speaking to many at a town hall event hosted by Southside Community Center. From 7 to 9 this past Wednesday night, Southside Community Center hosted a Black Town Hall via Facebook Live to discuss mental health and Black communities. Southside was incorporated by a group of Black women. They were called the Francis Harper Women's Club, and this is 1934. So we aren't far from being 100 years old celebrating our centennial. The event set out to shed light on the intersectional struggles of Black women, while honoring the life and legacy of musician and civil rights activist Nina Simone, who lived with manic depression and bipolar disorder. The discussion was moderated by Dr. Nia Nunn associate professor in the Department of Education at Ithaca College, as well as president of Southside's board of directors. The members of the panel were all Black women, and included six members from Ithaca College and Cornell University, as well as two community leaders. The panel began by discussing the stigma surrounding mental health in the Black community. Many panelists agreed that struggles that aren't visible are often denied or overlooked. Ariane Almond, a senior at Cornell, said that mental health issues in the Black community often stem from dealing with trauma. Are people being slaughtered and treated less than? Um, that takes a, a toll 
on you mentally, whether or not you, you think it does. Um, a lot of the microaggressions that we may face in day-to-day situations may take a toll on us, and we may not even um, understand that. In Finding Ways to Cope, the speakers discuss the significance of creating community in physical spaces. I see sophomore Kelly Clark shared how remote learning amid the pandemic has changed how she connects with friends and explained why she feels in-person interaction is so important. It's it's almost traumatic. Like it's 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 really just like having the socialization is just one of my needs. Talking about the language of mental health, I feel like we constantly are saying like things need to be fixed or something's wrong with you. And it's like, no, my needs are just not being met. Spaces such as the African Latino Society or the ALS Room at Ithaca College served as a place for POC students to meet for org meetings and events or more casual conversations and studying. Panelists discussed what else institutions can be doing to support and maintain the mental health of Black women. Bianca Beckwith, a junior at Cornell studying biological sciences with a concentration in neurobiology and behavior, expressed that college campuses should be equipped and committed to supporting Black students throughout their time at an institution. From undergrad through their graduate school training, are you following them throughout the years? Are you ensuring that, because who's going to be these Black female therapists that you want to provide if you're not supporting them to get to that place? And we already know that there's so many systemic barriers to us having this education, being able to stay in school, whether it's financial support, mental support, emotional support. I mean, demanding more. I mean, follow me from my start if you really want to see me get to the finish line. A brief intermission allowed panelists and viewers to stretch, breathe, and grab a sip of water, while slides presented a list of mental health resources, including those specific to Black communities, such as the Black Emotional and Mental Health, or BEAM Collective, as well as Melanin and Mental Health. When the speakers reconvened, they opened up about their experiences with speaking about mental health struggles with their families. Nicole Bethany Onwuka, a junior at Ithaca College, said that the topic of mental health was not common in her family, and explained how Black women are often forced to put up a defense, numbing their feelings to traumatic experiences. Something's wrong, but I'm okay. But at the same time, am I giving myself enough time to process it, or am I so busy trying to help the next person? I think Black women uh, do that a lot. Nina Simone is one of 20 Black leaders being taught to Ithaca youth through Southside Community Center's Black Consciousness Curriculum, which has also invited local Black students to assist in the virtual teaching. For the panel members and those watching, the town hall was an opportunity to catch their breath and feel validated in their identities and emotions. Rosanna Malone, a community leader and teacher at Downtown Ithaca Children's Center, shared what the event meant to her. Um, So knowing that there's someone else out there around my age that understands and I'm not alone, um, I've grown in my sisterhood today and added with new faces and and I'm loving it. For WICB News, I'm Nigel Young. For me, the past few months were a unique challenge. As the new news director in the summer, learning how to coordinate and direct people when you can't see most of them was hard, just as it was for many to do work, schoolwork, or even maintain connections with those they held close. Still, I couldn't be happier to still be able to get voices up on the air and online for everyone to hear, including some new ones. But 
being a student on top of all of that presented a whole new set of challenges faced by many throughout the country. Correspondents Antonio Fermi and new WICB production director Vedant Akari took a deep dive into the issues surrounding the quick switch to online schooling in the WICB News special, The Online Learning Curve. Here's a preview. When the academic year began, I had to temporarily take my classes in Illinois due to a family emergency. That meant taking my morning classes and having assignments due an hour earlier, which wasn't that bad. Now, imagine taking Eastern Time classes, but in a different country across the world, as is the case for an Ithaca College student in Pakistan. My name is Eamon Glimran. I am a junior and I'm a business major with a double concentration in international business and marketing. So can you describe what it was like for you to switch to remote learning in spring and then continue in fall 2020? In spring, I was actually studying abroad in Amsterdam. Over there, we have uh, six-week um, semesters, essentially. So they're kind of like block courses. And so the second my first um, semester ended was when the university shut down and we, I had exams the next week. So it was really sudden and out of the blue, our program, like the study abroad program, shut down entirely and they asked us to return to our home countries. And so I had to come back to Pakistan. And basically after that, there was a three hour time difference I had to manage. And there was um, not a whole lot of communication uh, with the professors or even the college itself. We would maybe get an email every week or uh, 10 days where like a random professor would say that, okay, the, the universities and the um, works of like coming up with some, some way for you guys to handle the situation. Till about the 1st of April, we actually did not know whether we were going to have online classes or not because all of the colleges and universities had to shut down uh, for the remaining month of May. And so this, this was like, honestly, at that time, it was very depressing for me, like kind of traumatic even because, uh, you know, like obviously someone who goes to study abroad is like super excited about it. And suddenly like their program shuts down. They don't know if they're going to be continuing with their lessons, how the credits are going to transfer over and so on. So it was it was pretty difficult. And honestly, by the end of it, um, I was so unhappy with the situation because it was hard to communicate with professors, especially I feel like face to face interaction is so important, especially like personally, like. I think it's very important. After that semester was over, I was actually very scared of the fall semester because I'd be returning to Ithaca and I had no idea how anything was gonna work. So I had co contemplated taking a leave of absence because not only was there gonna be a, a bigger time difference, but also I, I wasn't ready to relive my like experience from the from the last semester but then I talked to my advisor about it and he said that if I can manage the time difference which I thought that maybe I could at the time I only was like nine hours ahead so I, I figured that okay it'll be like evening classes it shouldn't be too hard and so once the semester started I was actually like surprised because all the professors they were really accommodating a lot more than the, uh, the ones in Amsterdam let me tell you it hasn't been easy in terms of the time difference obviously <laughs> Um, I, I'm up at like, I wake up at 5 PM and I'll go to sleep at 7 30 in the morning. It's, it's kind of ruined 
my routine and I think you know you don't get enough time out like you know you can't really go out and interact with people and I think that ends up depressing someone people and it also acts as a bit of a demotivator but I think at the end of the day I personally try to look on like the bright like the positive side of things and say that okay you know like I'm still managing it so far so good and so that's that's kind of what keeps me going here. Is there anything else you think that IC could be doing better in terms of remote instruction? Some professors do have like mandatory like attendance. And I think that tends to stress some people out, especially like for me, sometimes my last class is at um, 12 a.m. By, by that time, I'm naturally pretty brain dead. And we normally have like a quiz at the end of each week. And attendance is also like mandatory. And uh, we're allowed for unexcused absences. But I think not really having guidelines on what qualifies as an unexcused absence and so like for example i don't know if i've used up any because sometimes my internet connection stops working and that's actually been a huge obstacle i've faced being in pakistan there is constant construction and like whatever so we don't have great signals a lot of the time so sometimes i can't make it to my classes and actually because of the signals i actually couldn't take an exam one time and that really um, affected my grade and has Pakistan shut down schools and universities and or switched to online learning? Uh, yeah. So so Pakistan keeps like kind of alternating um, up until the 15th of September. Uh, schools were completely online. Everything was online. And then uh, they reopened schools and institutions uh, on the 15th of September. But I've heard that by the end of this month, um, most institutions are uh considering switching back to online learning. The only downside is that now they're also holding their exams earlier. So before the semester ends, um, just because they want to have like in-person um, examinations. So I, and I feel like that's been a little um, worrisome because they usually cram a lot of students into one big hall. Like they're packed like sardines taking exams. And I feel like that really increases the, the risk of spreading. So um, hopefully we're going to be going back to online learning by the end of the month. But so far right now, schools are for the most part in person. Josh Chase is the Director of Physical Education and Health for the Ithaca City School District. He's also a physical education teacher and the department chair at Ithaca High School. There's approximately 25 to 30 teachers in all that I oversee and I work with throughout, throughout the year. From heart rate to muscles to training principles, Chase gave his students a lot of cognitive work when he first went online back in March. It was difficult, uh, you know, being new, never been going through this before. Uh, we were building things day by day and relying on each other to uh, step up and, and work together. And it, it went really well, I thought, to, you know, for the first phase. Um, obviously, can it be better? Yes, it always can be better. And we're learning as we go. Chase said that keeping his students engaged is very tough, especially after the Board of Education's policy came down to the decision that teachers are not able to ask their students to keep their cameras on. Our school district has a policy where the students don't have to turn on their camera so a lot of times we are staring to a blank screen and um, it's tough for the teacher. I mean, also as a students, because you don't know what they're doing behind there. Um, and, you know, this is a challenging time for everybody. 
And, you know, I think students need physical activity more than ever, not only for their, you know, their mental ability, but just you know, physically be able to move and, and, and get out of the situation of sitting in front of a computer for six, eight hours a day and being active. Um, but you put that, you put that responsibility on a student that's at home, are they gonna do it? Are they not? They're gonna be on their phone, are they gonna be doing something else? That's you know, what is out of our hands at this time. Now Chase has two young kids in the district, one at the elementary school and one in middle school. He said he'd noticed a significant difference in the way these two age groups have participated during gym class. The majority of kids are online. The majority of kids are in front of a camera. They can't wait to see their teacher and they're excited and they um, can't wait to move and be active. Then you move up to the middle school and it starts to be, you know, kind of pick and choose of who's going to be in front of the camera and who's not. Then at the high school, it's, 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 um, it's unfortunately a, a lot of times it's a blank screen. When the school recently went virtual for a couple of weeks, Chase described how they were doing the best they could to keep their students engaged, even if they weren't able to gauge where their attention was at. I mean, I'm in front of the camera. I'm doing exercises. I'm showing the students that I'm going through yoga movements. I'm going through HIIT workouts. And I encourage students to join in. And I'm like, you know, am I going to be the only one here? Am I going to be the only one doing this? And a couple kids will pop on, which has been a pleasure for me because at least I get to see somebody along with me doing this. I don't, you know, like I said, they could be home sitting in bed. Do they click it on? I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping for the best. I'm hoping that they are being active during this time when I'm also trying to be active and promote uh, you know, a healthy lifestyle. Chase said the lessons other teachers have implemented to keep students engaged have been nothing short of incredible. Different games, card games with different exercises to uh, kind of like a whack-a-mole. If, you see, if they see you on the camera, you, get, you know, have to do 10 push-ups. And they're really engaging at the elementary level for those students that need that type of structure. At the middle school, same thing. We've been doing uh, kind of a mix and match of um, HIIT workouts to body weight workouts to uh, the yoga part, um, having them explore a little bit on their own. Although we try not to do that that much because that is putting a lot of responsibility and, and there's a lack of structure there that I think the students are not ready for. They need that structure. They need that um, guidance to perform. Um, the physical activity and be kind of instructed on how to do and what they're doing. Chase said that the PE teachers at the high school are doing an amazing job performing the online workouts over Zoom. After a long day, Chase said that he's the first to admit how tiring these exercises can really be. I, I'm the first one to admit, I mean, you get going two or three of these a day and in these 45 to an hour and a half long sessions and my body's sore by, you know, Tuesday and Wednesday, I'm ready for a break. So, you know, we got to switch up the routine. I got to do something different. Chase said that the best thing is that his students are adapting well. At the same time, he believes the lack of sports is devastating, especially for student athletes. If I was a high school uh, player and athlete, I'd, I'd be very upset. But it's you know something that they have no control over. You know, I've heard people say you know play each game like it's your last. Well, you, you know your last game could have been played last year, and, and you had to make the most of it. And you don't realize it till it's gone. You don't realize it until that time's passed. Chase is a man who wears many hats. He's also the assistant coach for the varsity baseball team, which had its season cut short last spring. We had a phenomenal group of, of players that we, we were going to work with, and we had really high expectations. And, you know, for them never to step on a field, never be able to compete was a real travesty. And, and it's a, a very unfortunate. But, um, you know, as long as they, they've had good guidance and they're, you know, moving on in life and they're doing well, that's what we're, we're proud of and we're, um, we're happy with. But now it's kind of a sit and wait to see what happens and see what new uh, standards and guidelines we have to go by. Athletes are doing three to four preseason workouts a week. 
but Chase doesn't think sports happening in the spring is realistic. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm hoping that there's a way for some of these sports to take place. Um, you know, there some of these sports can be done with um, correct guidance and uh, you know protocols. They can be followed. So, you know, I hope that there is some uh, possibility for these sports to take place. I hope they look at that and not to shut down the whole year because one group can't play over another. Um, that spring group last year, you know, this, this will be two years if they don't, if they're not allowed to take part. Chase is in charge of a summer baseball team in Ithaca where he said they had a fun and safe summer season. We met in groups. We were spread out, um, sanitizing everything, you know, at all times. And knock on wood, we made it through the entire from July 6th until late October without a case of, of COVID in our group. Chase said his summer league was able to play over 75 games in total. It was really an awesome thing. I mean, I, I, it was great to see those kids in a setting where, you know, things were shut out from the outside world and they're taking taking place and they're playing a game of baseball and it was it was great. So I hope that we can get to that point where we can have some, some of those games um, take place this spring. With online learning, Screen time has only become a more eminent problem for students. It's difficult to stay active during a pandemic. Um, I always tell my students in class, you know, I'm the last person you're going to see that's going to be, you know, kind of forcing you to be physically active. The next time when you step out, out of those school doors and you graduate, um, the next person to do that is yourself um, taking that role of uh, being active, being motivated to be physically active in lifetime sports. Chase said the one thing he wants from his students is to bring their best to every class. I will download um, a yoga sheet from online and say, here's, we're going to go through a sequence of yoga. I'll go through it. I've been through a couple lessons with uh, guest speaker, or guest uh, instructors that came to school. And I go through it with them. I'm saying, I'm not the best. I'm not the most flexible. Uh, I'm giving it a chance. I want you to as well. I'm, and, you know, that's all I ask is for them to give their best. You can find the whole piece on your favorite podcast app. And that's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to these and all other stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to full past shows, subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear this show anywhere, anytime on your favorite podcast app. Also, subscribe to The Latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations at Ithaca College, Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager Sam Ives, Programming Director Lou Barron, and News Social Media Coordinator Gabriel Topic. In addition to all of our correspondents and newscasters that have helped out during a very difficult past few months. Thank you so much. Ithaca Now is produced by myself, News Director Jay Bradley, with assistance from News Managing Director Celine Kizar and News Production Director Himaji Se. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. If you have any feedback, story ideas, or if you just want to say hi, feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We will be back after a few weeks break with more full episodes of Ithaca Now. But in the meantime, happy holidays and make sure to stay safe. I'm Jay Bradley, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.